But uh, so glad to be here. Nice to see your faces again. So would you open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We've got a biggie tonight, 52 verses. I was gone for two weeks, so we're going to cover them all. Now, last time we noted that Saul, who, if you remember, began well. He began in a state of humility. We'll find a verse that gives us that as a statement, ending all debate as to whether Saul actually ever was one who was humble before the Lord, as Samuel will say in just a moment. But we also noted that he began his reign of error early on in his role as the king over the nation. And this once humble and caring man was allowing power and position to get the best of him. And 1 Samuel 15, 17, that we'll look at next week, Samuel said to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, or in other words, when you were just a humble man, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now, it's been a few weeks, but I'll remind you in chapter 13, we were introduced to Jonathan, one of Saul's sons. And we're going to meet him again in our chapter tonight. And we're also going to see how ugly Saul's pride had become from the time that he was little in his own eyes. Now, we also made note last time that Saul's attitude began to impact the nation's attitude as well. And if you remember, there was a man named Nahash. His name means serpent. And he was the serpent king of the Ammonites. And he made threats against Jabesh Gilead. And Saul was angered by this. And in righteous indignation, he rallied the people. And he also did what 1 Samuel eleven seven told us. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying... Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Or they were in full agreement that they were going to deal with this serpent king who was seeking to conquer a portion of their homeland. Now, Nahash was soundly defeated because the people feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord fell on the people. Now, when Saul began to then fall prey to his own pride and flesh, the nation then had a very different response as well to another threat that came, and this time from the Philistines. If you remember back in chapter 13, 5 and 6, we're told the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people did what? They hid in caves, thickets, rocks, in holes, and in pits. Now, we made the observation last time that when you fear, when you lose the fear of the Lord, you open the door for all other fears. Once you open yourself up, to losing or lacking the fear of the Lord, then you become, as the Israelites did, fearful of other things. And the people who once feared the Lord now feared the Philistines. Yet the same God who gave them victory over Nahash and the Ammonites was still on the throne and in control and gave promises to Israel that he would watch over them. Now, we also made the point last time, just by way of reminder, that divine instructions don't come with an expiration date. 
If God said, do this or do that, it's always going to be true. If he gives us an instruction based on his nature and character, it's always going to be true. If he tells us that he is ever going to be faithful to us, and even if we are faithless, he's going to remain faithful, that's always going to be true. There's no expiration date on the nature and character of God. Somebody say, amen. Now, the people who face the Ammonites in the fear of the Lord should have and could have faced the Philistines with that same fear. Now, tonight our chapter is going to reveal really the difference between Jonathan and his father, King Saul. And if you remember in chapter 13, Jonathan had a victory over the Philistines, and Saul actually swooped in and took credit for it. And his true character is going to be revealed even more fully tonight, as is Jonathan's. Now, we're going to note that Saul was a man of pride and therefore a man of the flesh. And as we look at Jonathan in contrast to him, what he's going to teach us through his practices and actions is how to live, and here's our title, a life of faith and power. I hope that's all of our desires, to live a life of faith and power. Now, Hebrews 11.6 reminds us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Him is who? God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do what? Who diligently seek him. Those who are serious about seeking after the will and ways of the Lord. Now, in reading what follows in Hebrews chapter 11, we find a list of names of people who walked in faith and experienced divine power manifested in their lives. For the same chapter in 32 and 35 says, What more shall I say, according to the author? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, might I add, by God's power, worked righteousness because God had promised it, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions by God's power, quenched the violence of fire by God's power, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. All of this by the manifested power of God and their faith and trust in him. After all, Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith. Now, Jonathan tonight is going to show us what it looks like to believe God and the power that is accessed when one acts and lives by faith. And he's also going to remind us that living by faith is going to make us a target, sometimes even within our own families, as it happens to him. Well, we've got a big chapter, so let's jump in. And we'll start by reading 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 17. So would you stand and read with me, please, 1 Samuel 14, 1 to 17. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, uh, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. 
between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and as he came after him, his armor-bearer killed them. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within a half acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp in the field and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. You may be seated. Now, I could just summarize these verses for us, but the fact is, when we get done with 1 Samuel, we're going to have read every single word of every chapter because the word of God does not return void. Amen? Now, the contrast between Saul and Jonathan emerges for us immediately as we see them in two very different circumstances. Jonathan is planning a raid on an enemy stronghold or garrison with he and his armor bearer as the invading force. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree surrounded by 600 men as protection and a priest wearing an ephod for good measure. Now, Jonathan and his armor bearer slip out of the camp unbeknownst to Saul or the people, which in and of itself tells us something about Jonathan's character. Remember, Jonathan was a young man. He will have his soul later knit together with David, who was also a young man. And Jonathan was not a man of pride. He didn't make the announcement that, hey, hang on, guys, we'll be back in a bit. We're going to go handle this Philistine garrison and come back and tell you how things went. No, he just slipped out quietly to do what was on his heart. And as he acted on what the Lord laid on his heart, he found a passageway up to this Philistine garrison that required traversing a crag between two sharp rocks that were so prominent and ominous, they actually had names. Bozed means glistening and Sena means thorny. 
And those who have studied the geography of the area will tell us that Bozes was called glistening because the sun shone on it all day, yet Sena was in the shade all day and like a treacherous thorn hiding in the shadows. It was just that for those who would seek to climb up between the two sharp rocks. At the crest of this Craig, between these two uh, sharp rocks, lay Michmash in the Philistine garrison. Now, in verse 6, we begin to get a glimpse into Jonathan's faith. And let me just point out some mechanics here that are important to us living by faith and power. He doesn't say God is going to be obligated to honor this step of faith. He doesn't say God is going to make this happen because I believe this is going to happen and it's in my heart. He actually says, maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. Maybe he will work through us because the fact is God can work through many or few. And most likely he had the story of Gideon in mind as they were now transitioning out of the age of the judges into the time of the kings. F.B. Meyer made an interesting comment about these verses where he said, Faith is the indomitable power by which we call unto our help a whole range of laws and forces which are outside the lives of ordinary men. In other words, there are things that are exclusive to those who seek to live by faith. And that includes divine power in the midst of our battles of life. Now, Jonathan knew that God was for him. He knew that God had worked through the few to save his people from the uncircumcised many in the past. He knew the Philistines' intentions, and he acted on what was in his heart with a confident boldness, not a fleshly arrogance. Now, this gives us our first very basic insight into a life of faith and power. And jot this down if you're a note taker tonight. Listen, faith is simply living as though God is who he says he is. That's really what faith is. Faith is living as though God is who he says he is. Now, in the past, we have identified faith as acting on proven truth. Does God have a track record of faithfulness? Does he have a track record of delivering his people? Never leaving nor forsaking us. So we are acting on proven truth, not just simply blind faith, when we step out in faith to do something like Jonathan does here, though we'll identify some distinctions in our day from the actions of Jonathan. So often we overcomplicate things when in reality, faith is simply a life lived as though the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. It's a life that is lived as if nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is a life that is lived as though no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. It's a life that is lived as though no weapon formed against us will prosper. It's a life lived like we can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. And we are living by faith when we live with those things in mind. And we have access, therefore, a whole range of laws and forces outside the lives of ordinary men or people who are not people of faith in the true and living God. Jonathan knew the battle belonged to the Lord. He knew the Philistines were intent on Israel's destruction. He knew that God would not forsake his people because God had revealed these truths and proved them in the past And they are about his nature and character. Therefore, they are unchanging. So Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed on their hands and knees between the sharp stones to reveal themselves to the enemy. 
and put the matter in the Lord's hands when they said, if they say we're coming to you, we're going to stay put. But if they say, come up here, we'll know the Lord has delivered them into our hands. Now, it's interesting, the Philistines, I couldn't help but think, they may not have been the sharpest sword in the sheath because what they said to Jonathan and his armor bearer was a bit comical, at least in my thinking. Come up here, we want to show you something. As though they're going to say, oh, okay. And indeed they did go up to them, but not for what they thought they were going to experience. The Philistines say to the invading pair, come up. They had already shown themselves. They had already discussed among themselves. Look, the cowards have come out of their holes and the pits where they had been hiding from us. We need to remember something in Mark eleven twenty four, where Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will what? You will have them. This is a life of faith. And Jonathan was not putting out a fleece based on doubt like Gideon did. He wanted to know how the Lord was going to deliver them into their hands, whether they would take advantage of their point in the crag between the sharp stones, or if they were going to be called up to handle them on the garrison floor themselves. And the Lord obviously chose the latter. And on their arrival at the garrison, the pair struck about 20 men within less than an acre's space, and fear fell upon the Philistines, which was compounded by the Lord shaking the earth with a very great trembling. And this caught the attention of Saul's watchmen, who saw the Philistines falling apart at the seams, very disorganized and confused. So, seeing this go on, the watchmen who were surveying every move of the Philistine army, watching from the vantage point where Saul was seated under the pomegranate tree, noticing that there was military activity going on and the Philistines were being defeated, Saul's logical next move was, let's take roll call. Well, it makes absolutely no no sense and it was absolutely needless. And most likely Saul wanted to take role because he wanted to see who was doing what he should have been doing instead of sitting under the pomegranate tree. And he was worried about somebody else getting credit for having done so, even as he took the credit for Jonathan's previous victory. Now, to Saul and everyone else's surprise, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were, rather than sitting under a tree in the shade, acting on faith, believing God is who he says he is, and rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, before we move on, let me just give you one little reminder that has been said in multiple ways and times over the years, and it's just something we need to keep in our hearts and minds, and that is when facing the giants and the problems of life, we need to remember the greatness of our God. And that's what stirred Jonathan. That was what was moving in his heart. He said, God doesn't need a whole regiment. God doesn't need multiple platoons. God doesn't need the whole of the armies of Israel. God can use just me and you, armor bearer. And indeed, the Lord did. Listen, God's people have been outnumbered since the very beginning beginning in Egypt and even beyond and down through the ages. And we are outnumbered today, but our God is greater than all of our adversaries. Amen? Now look at 18 to 35 once again, and we've got another long read, and we are moving quickly through this, but we've got much ground to cover. Pick it up in 18. And Saul said to Ahijah, 
bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they had found, for now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and, and the people ate them with the blood." Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now, sadly, the first thing to take note of is that the Ark of the Covenant, a sacred piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies that represented the presence of God on the earth to Israel that was in Shiloh for some nearly 400 years, was now reduced to a basic good luck charm in the minds of the people. And Saul sends for it, and then he feigns interest in what the Lord would have him to do when he talks to Ahijah, the priest. Now remember, we were told in verse 3 that Ahijah was wearing an ephod, upon which the shoulder would be fastened, the Urim and Thummim, the way that The will of God was determined in the early days of Israel. Most believe that it was a little canister of some kind, pottery obviously, that had a white or a black stone and a black stone in it. And yes or no questions were asked of the Lord. And then the lot was cast. And if the white stone came out, it was uh, yes. And if a black stone came out, the answer was no. But he tells, Saul that is, tells Ahijah, withdraw your hand. In other words, don't even consult the Urim and the Thummim. Don't inquire 
of the Lord. And upon hearing the increased noise in the Philistine camp, Paul or Saul rather says, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, forget the Urim and Thummim. Let's get to the battle because they're winning without me. And when they arrive at the battle, the Philistines were so confused, they were actually fighting against each other. And the invading army of two men, Saul and his, or Jonathan and his armor bearer, had grown into a force when the Hebrews, who had previously been enslaved and taken to Michmash by the Philistines, joined Jonathan and his armor bearer. And then Saul's 600 men joined that group. And then those who had hid themselves in the mountains and caves of Ephraim, And then we're told the Lord saved Israel that day. But this all began when one man believed that God was who he said he was and that he could save and deliver through many or few. And the spiritual state of Saul is further revealed as he places the people under an oath. And then he turns around and takes credit for the victory. He places the people under a curse for eating anything until... He is victorious over his enemies. Now, who delivered the nation of Israel that day? The Lord. The Lord is the one who gave the victory. The Lord is the one who saved Israel that day. And as the army made their way from Michmash to beth they were weary and hungry because of Saul's foolish oath. Yet, Jonathan, being unaware of this, takes a bite of honey, and his countenance brightens. I think we've all had those times where we have a bite of something after a long period of fasting or whatever, and it renews our zip and our zeal. And this is exactly what happened to Jonathan. He had been fighting all the day. He had run out of energy and a little dip of honey to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. He was rejuvenated physically, so to speak. Now, since the Lord saved Israel that day, it's safe for us to assume that the Lord led them to a place where there was honey in abundance so they could be refreshed for the battle. Yet Saul, a man of flesh and pride, forbids the people to do what would enable them to finish the battle in full strength. Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. He has troubled the nation of Israel with this ridiculous oath. And Jonathan offers himself as proof. Look what happened to me when I dipped into the honey. Could we not have finished the battle much stronger and taken more consequence uh, on our enemies had we been refreshed with the honey. Now, in Judges eleven thirty to 34, we see another foolish vow made by a man named Jephthah. And he made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against him, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Aurora as far as Beneath, and twenty cities, Abel, Kiramim, with a very great slaughter, and thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son or daughter. Now, the story goes on to say, the daughter said, Do what it is you avow to the Lord, but give me two months to go mourn with my friends. And then Judges 11 tells us that he carried out his vow. He offered his own daughter in a sacrifice to the Lord. Listen, God is against human sacrifice. He is against the sacrifice of babies. He was against it 
when uh, the children of Israel participated in offering their children to the god Molech, he is against it today. God is the giver of life. He does not require human life to satisfy himself. The only thing that satisfies his judicial nature was the blood of his own son. And God poured upon him the wrath that you and I deserve. Aren't you glad for that tonight? Aren't you glad for that tonight? Yes, amen. I couldn't help but think of Ecclesiastes 5, 2 and the wisdom of Solomon when he said, Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, which is what Jephthah did, which is what Saul did. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be what? Few. Don't be quick to make foolish oaths. And in both cases, foolish words led to grave consequences. When the people had driven the Philistines from Michmash, the army was failing with hunger. And the end result was they rushed on the spoil and they ate sheep, oxen, and calves without draining the blood as prescribed by the law in Genesis 9-4, that you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, the blood. The Bible tells us in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And Saul's foolish oath led to the people's sin. And then Saul added to the problem by acting as a priest and offering sacrifices on an altar while charging the people not to sin against the Lord while he himself was sinning against the Lord. Now, this leads to our next insight into a life of faith and power, a point of application for us to remember in times such as these. Listen this evening. The life of faith and power is not influenced by the sinful actions of others. The life of faith and power is not influenced by the sinful actions of others. Now, outside of Jonathan's statement about the trouble his father had caused on the land, it's noteworthy that he is absent from the narrative at this point as Saul continues his feigned spirituality. Now, that reminds us that it is possible... It is even our right, it is even our responsibility to remain steadfast in the faith no matter what is going on around us and no matter who says what in our day. And the proof for you and I as members of the church is Revelation 2, 12 to 13, where Jesus said to the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamos or Pergamos, right, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword, which is symbolic of the word. I know your works and where you dwell, where, what? Where do they dwell? Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, church tradition says that Antipas, much like Polycarp, was a faithful man of God. And like with Polycarp, those who were called to execute him pleaded with him to recant his faith. And Polycarp said, who was the bishop of Smyrna, a disciple of John the Beloved, he said, 86 years I have served my Lord and he has never denied me and I will not deny him now. Church tradition says and Antipas says, recant your faith, Antipas, the whole world is against you. To which Antipas replied, then I am against the world. And he was not to be bullied by the threats of adversaries around him. And listen, if holding fast to his name and not denying their faith in Christ is possible when dwelling where Satan's throne is, it is possible in the age in which we now live. Even when churches are abandoning biblical precepts and doctrines in droves, 
Even when state governments are proving themselves not only to be evil, but to be demonic in executing babies in the third trimester of their growth period inside the womb. And some even going as far to say, when they're outside the womb, you're free to murder them too. It's not life at all. Even in such a time as this, even in a world that is purporting that Christianity is actually the problem and the Christian faith is the source of much of the world's problems, even in this season of history, we need not be influenced by the sinful actions of those around us. Somebody say amen. Now, one of the most bizarre things to me that I've heard over the years, time and again, in the church is people who say they no longer believe in God and they refuse to attend church because of the actions of some human being. Listen, true faith does not allow the actions of anyone to shake their faith in the true and living God. God has never failed us. God has never let us down. God has never betrayed us. God has never talked behind our back. God has never done some of the things that humans do. And therefore, he is not to be blamed. After all, Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Now, God doesn't allow things that are hard to understand at times. Amen? God doesn't allow things that are hard for our finite minds to grasp and see. How in the world can anything good be birthed out of this? Well, listen, God is never unfaithful to his word, and he is never unfaithful to his children. And Jonathan stood against his own father, the king. Because he lived a life of faith and power and trusted in the true and living God. And I say tonight, if he can do it, finish it. We can do it. Let's finish off at 36 to 52. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. 
So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger was Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the name and the daughter of Ahimeaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now the people having eaten were strengthened. And Saul said, let's finish this. And the people said, we're with you. Ahijah said, shouldn't we inquire of the Lord before we do this as to whether or not he will deliver the Philistines in their hands? And I want you to note the difference between Saul's approach and Jonathan's approach. Jonathan was attacking the Philistines by faith. He said, God may deliver them into our hands because he can and do whatever he pleases with few or many. Ahijah says, and Saul agrees, let's find out if we're going to win before we go to battle. And they seek an answer through, again, the Urim and Thummim. And we know this because they pose their question in a yes or no format. Are we going to have victory? Should we go up against them? But there was no answer. And Saul says, well, it's because of sin. Let's find out who the sinner is. And he separated he and Jonathan from the people, assuming the lot would fall upon the people. And when it fell on them, Saul said, well, cast the lot between Jonathan and I. And the lot fell on Jonathan. And Saul pressed him for what he had done. And Jonathan says, I ate honey because I was hungry. So now I must die. And instead of saying, you know what, son, it was a foolish oath and a curse I spoke over the people. This king of flesh and pride said, yeah, you must die, Jonathan, and even more. Saul would actually destroy his own son if he stood in his way. Why? Because Saul was jealous of Jonathan, just like he would later be jealous of David. He wants all the glory for himself. And the army had remained silent throughout this interrogation and all of Saul's rantings and ravings. But when Jonathan's life was at stake, they could no longer keep quiet. And they said to Saul, nobody's going to die today. Not a hair of his head is going to fall to the ground. For it was Jonathan who acted on faith and therefore divine power that brought about this great victory by the Lord. Now, let me move forward in history a bit for us. Remembering when the apostles were arrested for preaching and an angel of the Lord went and freed them or released them from prison overnight. And when the officers of the court went the next day to bring them before the council, they said, you know what? The guards were at the doors. The gates were all shut, but the men weren't inside. They were all gone. And in Acts 5.25, we're told, so one came and told the council saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? 
And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be the prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who, what? Obey him. Listen, the Bible tells us in Romans 13 and elsewhere that we are to honor the king. Hebrews tells us to obey the rulers that are set over us. The Bible also clearly says if the government begins to infringe upon what you believe and demand you participate in evil practices like killing Jonathan because of a foolish oath, then it's time to stand up against them and obey God rather than men. And our chapter concludes with a summary of Saul's reign and details about his family and his closest associates and that his reign until the end was one of war with the Philistines. And just like Samuel said he would do, When Saul encountered a a valiant man, a strong man, among the families of Israel, he would take him for himself. As Samuel told him, he will take your children for his own. Now, let me set up our last consideration of a life of faith and power with a familiar set of verses. Ephesians 6, 12 to 13 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hopes of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand when? In the evil day, having done all to stand. Are we living in evil days? Can we stand in evil days? We can do all to stand as we're admonished by Paul in Ephesians. Now listen, we may not be facing Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, or Philistines today, but we are facing the same spiritual forces that were the driving force behind their hatred and attacks of the nation of Israel, and that is principalities and powers, the rank and file of fallen angels, and the rulers of darkness of this age. Now here's a last simplistic observation I want to leave you with here tonight from these 52 verses. Listen, here's a reminder. The life of faith and power is one of spiritual warfare. The life of faith and power is one of spiritual warfare. Living by faith isn't the ability to, to actualize our own magnificent reality or to believe things into existence, or to confess them and make them happen and have them be realized in our own life. A life of faith and power is the power to stand in the evil day. And as much as we may like our journey to heaven to be one of sitting under a pomegranate tree, it isn't. It's one of opposition to the God of this world and those who are furthering his agenda. Now I have to say, we don't have the opportunity except uh, late in the evening to watch much TV. And we program our TV like many of you do to watch a few shows. And, you know, I guess just because of uh, being uh, familiar with the show as a kid and everything, we watch Hawaii Five O and uh, enjoy, you know, even though they don't say Bookum Dano anymore. But it's kind of interesting. We were watching uh, a show uh, the other evening, and um, they were presenting Christians as some sort of homophobic psychopaths that were out of touch with reality. 
Well, I can assure you that is deleted from our DVR and recordings, and I'm not going to watch that garbage anymore. And the fact is, all forms of media and most of the government today is against us. And the battle is what it has always been, even though the human element of the battle may have changed names. It's not Ammonites and Edomites and Philistines. It's the media, or as Amir calls them, the Medianites. We are at war against them. And listen, Paul isn't saying we don't have human enemies. He was saying there are spiritual hosts of wickedness driving the human element of attack against the church, just as was true with the nation of Israel. Yet Paul also would tell us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God, and for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is full. That last statement may seem a bit confusing to us, but Paul is simply saying you need to live a life of obedience to be able to say to someone else, hey, you know what, that's wrong what you're doing, and it dishonors God. Now, as we see with Jonathan, God uses people to carry out his will, but God takes full credit for the victories even though the numbers of invading forces into the Philistine garrison were growing by those who had been captured. First the two, Jonathan and the armor bearer, then those who were captured by the Philistines and enslaved by them, then Saul and his army, and then those who were hiding in the pits and the hills and caves of the mountains of Ephraim joined the battle. But it was the Lord who won the day. Amen. And so too with Satan. He uses people to carry out his will. He uses people to do his bidding. And his realm of fallen angels and those who follow him rejoice in all that he has done through people. I think Satan is well pleased that we see more and more babies being murdered in our day. It's been one of his tactics all the way back in Egypt when he used Pharaoh to kill male children. And then again Herod to kill male children. Children, And since he couldn't kill the Messiah, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.16, that would crush his head. Now it's just open season, male or female. He doesn't care. He just wants to kill people. And the earlier he can kill them, the less effective they'll be against his kingdom. Now, I personally, because of what David said, when his own infant child died, the child born to he and Bathsheba, David said uh, that... Uh, He won't come to me, but I will go to him. He had the full expectation that his infant child was in heaven. I think what is happening in heaven, there has been 60 million children slaughtered in the womb here in these United States. And I believe every single one of them are in heaven. And heaven's population has been increased. Now, a life of faith and power is and always has been one of spiritual warfare. But our warfare are not swords and shields like those of Jonathan and the Israelites, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now think about where the church began, and we'll see how to do this. In Acts two forty-two and 43, we're told they, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' what? Doctrine. Doctrine means teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, which resulted in what? Many wonders and signs done through the apostles. 
Now listen, people in churches today are abandoning apostolic doctrines, the things that they taught that they learned from Jesus. And the cost of doing so is a loss of faith and power. But listen, we can do all to stand even in the evil day. And please note, Jonathan did, and though slow coming, it led to boldness and others to stand up to the man who was in power and king over the nation, who was bent on doing a great evil. And listen, a life of faith and power is no more than just living like God is exactly who he has told us that he is. A life of faith and power is not one that a sinful world can push into disobedience or denial of the Lord. A life of faith and power is where the weapons are deployed that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds like a Philistine garrison was pulled down in Michmash when two men decided our God is able and in him we have the victory. We need to make that same decision today that in the Lord we have the victory. He who watches over Israel, remember Israel means governed by God or prince of God, and we are kings and priests to the Lord. We are God's chosen people by faith as the church today, and our God will be faithful to us. And he neither slumbers nor sleeps, but his eye is ever upon us. And we can stand in these ever-increasing evil days. And all God's people agree by saying... And Father, we are thankful for this big chapter and the lessons within it. We thank you, Lord, that we see Jonathan, a man of integrity, raised in a household where there was none. Yet he wasn't influenced by those around us because he believed that you are who you said you are. And he based his actions on the history that he knew from study of your word and the stories told of the accomplishments of old from those of men like Joshua and Gideon who had a boldness that was based upon understanding your nature and character and love for your people. So Lord, may that be true for us, even though our engagements are not the same ethnic people groups we see facing the Israelites, the spiritual forces behind them are one and the same, principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Help us, Lord, to do all to stand in these ever-darkening days, knowing that we are able through you, and it is you who will win the day. We thank you, Lord, for these exceedingly great and precious promises. Help us to live every day from this point forward as though they're true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.